Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. Happy day before Valentine's Day. Happy Tri-State Snow Day. Later in the show, we'll invite calls from parents whose kids are home today, but not for an old-fashioned snow day off from school, rather another indignity visited upon childhood by the legacy of the pandemic, a remote learning day instead of a snow day. Why? Because they can. And we will invite you to say if they're doing that in your local school district. We know New York City public schools are. What about your local schools? If you're anywhere else in the area, you'll be invited to call, too. And one other thing, parents, to get your little remote learners ready for, if you and they would like, we'll invite students of any age, the students, not just you parents, to call in on that segment and give us one opinion about anything in the news. You can groom a little editorialist uh, before we do that segment later in the show. You have to be a high school student or younger for that one. And if you call, you can tell your teacher that Brian Lehrer said you should get extra credit in social studies for doing it. So gather up a cogent opinion on something, anything in the news, kids, and call it in for extra credit. All right? That'll be the last segment in the show today around 1140 on this first snow day in two years. This is also a day when the January inflation numbers were just released about an hour and a half ago, and the news is mixed. As the Wall Street Journal website tells it, the report shows consumer prices rose 3.1% in January from a year earlier. That was a cool down from last month, but more than the 2.9% increase economists polled by the Wall Street Journal expected. Uh, so I'll add here that it's still very, very close. They were expecting 2.9%. Instead, it was 3.1%. So it says core prices, which exclude food and energy items, rose 3.9%, that inflation category. And it says that was also above the 3.7% increase economists expected. Investors, they remind us, have been awaiting the latest inflation reading for clues on how soon the Federal Reserve might start cutting interest rates. So we'll get a take in just a minute on how that might be affecting our local area. But another report coming out today also deals with the top affordable uh, affordability issue, the number one affordability issue facing so many people around here. And you can guess what that is. The report is from New York City Comptroller Brad Lander, and it's called New York City's Housing Supply Challenge. It's a very timely report, not just because of the inflation numbers coming out today, but also because Lander just testified before the state legislature about housing and other city financial issues, including the real economic costs and benefits of the recent asylum seekers as he sees them, state budget cuts to CUNY, but not to SUNY, and more. So with us now, the New York City Comptroller, Brad Lander. Comptroller, always good to have you on. Welcome back to WNYC. Good morning, Brian. Great to be with you on this snow day. First things first on this snow day, where are you and how much of a winter wonderland is it out your window? I'm in the municipal building uh, and the snow looks great falling uh, from here. And I didn't have any trouble getting into work this morning, but 
I do want to share with you, I just got a text from a third grade parent who said the third grade teacher on Zoom said, uh, would everyone please stop sending the emojis, especially the poop emojis? Imagine if you were in class, would you be throwing poop? So I don't know if the remote learning is going as well as one might hope. Problem is, the answer to that question might be yes. <laughs> I think what they'd like to be throwing is snowballs. Yes. In fact, they will probably be out soon. Have you, have you tested it? I haven't. Does it pack? Because the last little snowfall we had a few weeks ago, uh, less than this, but it didn't even pack. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wet and melting, I'm afraid, by the time kids get to the park. Uh, we'll see. It's going to be too wet to sled. In all seriousness, though, do you have an opinion as a citywide elected official about this new system, because this is the first time they're doing it, of having this be a remote learning day rather than a snow day totally off in the old-fashioned way? Uh, this is me speaking as a parrot more than as a controller. I, I think a snow day is like, that's some of my best memories of my kid are sledding and sledding in Prospect Park. And uh, yes, I, I, I'm in favor of snow days and, and not remote learning days, which I think do pretty little to help kids learn. You're on the record. There's the headline. That's the quote. No matter what we say now about housing <laughs> or education or anything else, that's the one our news department is going to use in the newscast all day. Fair but enough. as still on this topic, though, one other thing, as controller who, who watches the books, tell me if my memory is accurate or inaccurate. Uh, on this. Isn't the state aid formula for the city schools dependent on having a certain number of actual school days? I think it's 180 days a year. Yeah. And so if they call a total snow day, they have to make it up by shortening Easter week or something. Is that the yeah. actual alternative here? Yeah, you do have to either build those days into the calendar. Um, and we've at, you know, we now are giving uh, Diwali and Lunar New Year important for communities to get those holidays. Um, but yes, uh, we'd either have to have a slightly shorter spring break or if you want to build, you know, having a snow day into the year, um, you've got to have it in the calendar. Yeah. So it's not just the Department of Education being party poopers here. Oh, there's that word again. Um, but it there's. There is actually a reason, maybe, right? Because if they didn't have the pain today of remote learning, which might be, you know, an hour and a half of emojis and then wink, wink, school day's over, early dismissal, they'd have to make it up and go another day. Or is that wrong? Well, if you had built an extra day or two in and you actually got it, then great. The kids get an extra day or two of learning in the classroom. Uh, this just seems to me silly, like the, the this nominal remote learning day isn't really helping kids learn. So it may be required by state law in the funding formula, but it's not actually helping produce educational outcomes. And yeah, maybe it's not the job of the school system to deliver those great memories of sledding with the kids. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's got to be a way to, to get it done. New York City Controller Brad Lander is my guest. All right, let's talk inflation. This report out this morning is making the stock market go down a little. The rate of inflation did continue to go down last month. Let's not miss that part of the headline. The rate of inflation continued to go down last month, but not as much as expected. Consumer prices are going up at around a 3% annual pace right now. Any thoughts on the report in national context and any thoughts on how it is most affecting New Yorkers. 
First, let's appreciate how far down that is from when inflation peaked at above 6%. And that was really stressing households out in rising costs. 3% still above the Fed's 2% target for sure and slightly above what economists' projections were. But it's really come down and, and we, it looks like, might be able to get that quote-unquote soft landing that economists were hoping for but thinking was going to be elusive, then inflation and prices could keep coming down but still have good job creation and that that could persuade the Fed to go ahead and lower interest rates back down a bit, which makes it easier for people to buy homes and start businesses. So I remain hopeful. Yes, it's a little higher than expectations, but the big trend is good. Inflation is easing. Consumer confidence is good. Hopefully the Fed will be able to bring rates down and, and keep our economy growing. And does that inflation report, that national inflation report that comes out once a month, even cover the cost of housing, which we'll talk about in some detail in a minute around your new report? Um, there's a number of you mentioned the PCE deflator, which just looks at the core cost. So some metrics include and some metrics exclude housing. Um, obviously, as you say, in New York City, housing costs, especially if you're looking for a, a unit, are what have risen the most and are what hit families' pocketbooks the most. Right. So that's uh, that's not even counted in what we think of as the consumer price index or the annual inflation report that comes out like it did this morning every month from the Treasury Department. Yeah. Um, what about inflation and the finances that your job is specifically to watch? Expenses for the city government, which of course could affect tax rates and maybe could affect, um, if everything costs more, how many services the city could provide, whether it's libraries or anything else. Where has this several year burst of inflation hit the city budget the hardest? So the biggest is in giving raises to city workers. You know, about a year ago, the city, uh, the mayor reached the deal with the first big public sector union, DC 37, and now it's been applied almost across the board to all city workers. And over the four years of the financial plan, that added about $17 billion to the budget. So, you know, about $4 billion uh, a year. Um, yeah, and you know, so the annual cost of those raises is more than we're spending on asylum seeker shelter and and services. But of course, we got to have our city workers be able to uh, make enough to keep doing their jobs so they don't leave. And um, and we can't deliver snow plowing or affordable housing or teaching our kids. Uh, so that's the biggest. But it shows up in other ways as well. When interest rates are high, that means you know the city pays more in debt service for the, the same amount of debt. We found some creative ways in the controller's office uh, to keep our financing costs down, even as interest rates are rising. Um, but those are two of the big places inflation shows up in our budget. Yeah. Now, listeners, our phones are open for New York City Controller Brad Lander. Your stories, questions, and comments about anything local economy related, 212 433 WNYC, what's the inflation news from your life recently? What's still going up? What's coming down? And who do you blame? Or more importantly, what do you think they should do about it now at the policy level? 212-433-9692. How about the eternal housing supply question, which we're about to get into in some detail? We have two perennial opinions about affordable housing around here. 
controller, tell me if you agree. Number one, we desperately need more affordable housing. Number two, just don't build any near me. Um, or any other questions for New York City controller Brad Lander, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, call or text. So your report called New York City's housing supply challenge. Top line, the rental unit vacancy rate is at its lowest point in decades. Only 1.4% of units, so a little over 1% of units are vacant at any one time recently. And my first question about that is, why is it that low? I thought hundreds of thousands of people moved out of the city during the early part of the pandemic which theoretically would reduce demand for rentals relative to supply. And there was in 2021 when that happened, actually an increase. That rate that's now down to 1.4% was a little over 4% in 2021. But you know, the first is a long-term trend. We have not built enough housing. From 1980 to 2010, the rate of job growth in the city uh, and new housing, that's kind of what you're tracking to compare housing growth to economic growth, were about even, about 14% a year over those uh, 30 years. But after the Great Recession, um, the recovery meant job growth went up to 23%, but housing growth really stalled, only about 9% a year, opening up a much bigger gap in the ratio between employment to housing, um, and that's just supply and demand. So we have fewer housing units per person. Um, We got that um, during the pandemic, as a lot of people left at the beginning, but then most of them came back. And this is, uh, we don't have good data on this yet, but it looks like people are uh, where they can consuming a little more housing. If you're working from home, you might've been looking for an extra bedroom. Um, and so that led to even more demand relative to supply. And yeah, the results are those numbers you gave. And for the average New Yorker, you know, the median rental unit at 1650, the vacancy rate is below 1%. And that's why asking rents uh, on available units citywide are at $3,500 4000 in Manhattan, just way, way beyond the price the average New Yorker can pay. Yeah. You then give a surprising stat, though, that in the past 40 years, the population of the city and the supply of new housing both increased by about 25 percent. So you mean housing supply has actually been keeping up with new demand since the 1980s? Because if true, that would also make me scratch my head about rents (laughs) going up so much faster than most other things. Yeah, we dig in and I encourage other people to take a look at this uh, report that's up on our website. Um, there are more adults per housing unit in New York, I mean, uh, per family, per household in, in New York than there were. So somewhat more single adults rather than families or two adult or three adult households. Um, and again, those folks are seeking more bedrooms. So you know, what it looks to us like is, you know, even as much housing has been produced, it just hasn't kept pace with the the demand for housing overall relative to jobs or relative to people per household. Um, and yeah, we, you know, uh, Americans have gradually been wanting more and more square footage for housing. That continues. If we're going to keep prices down, we've got to push supply up. Let me understand that a little more. Did you say that there are more adults-only households in New York City than there used to be? That is, there's a 
a larger percentage of households in New York City uh, than in the past have no children? That's right. Uh, the proportion of adult-only households, you know, might be single adult or might have two or three adults, but no kids under 18, rose from 71% in 2017 to 74% in 2022. That's not a huge increase, um, but those households, you know, you, you'll have more bedrooms, they need more square footage, and so they are, on average, consuming a bit more housing. It's interesting. That, too, it's a little bit counterintuitive, isn't it? Because I might think that when you're a young person, let's say a young single person in your 20s, um, you know, you can live with roommates. So, yeah, there'd be multiple units in the um, in the apartment, but, you know, pretty small number of square feet per individual. Then when you have kids, if you're raising kids, that's why people move to bigger places traditionally, right? You know, there was, I know one version, of, one New York City, sort of liberal New York City version of this. Did you ever hear this? Um, when uh, people, people who are single on the Upper West Side, when they have a kid, they move to Park Slope because <laughs> you could get more, or you can get a second bedroom cheaper yeah. than in Manhattan. And then when they have their second kid, they move to Montclair, Exactly. Um, but, you know, but that feeds the, the traditional notion that as you have children, you need more space. But then when the children are grown and out of the house, older people then downsize because they don't need the kids' rooms. Is that is that not true or did it used to be true and it's no longer true? You know, broadly, those things are still happening, but we just didn't have that much slack in the rental market to begin with. I mentioned it got to just above 4% at the height of the pandemic as people had left. It's generally hovered between 2 and 3%. So there just has not been that much slack in New York City's uh, housing market and the rental market, especially anything below 5% is considered a housing emergency. And that's why we continue to have rent regulation to protect tenants from getting pushed out as rents rise. And so even these small impacts, in some ways, just the pandemic churn, you have people go out and come back in. Now, if they're looking, you've got more people, you know, looking for a new unit. Um, and, you know, again, these numbers just came out this week and we're still digging into them. Um, but that's what we think is going on. Here's a question about affordable housing from a listener who writes in, Brian, please ask about the more than 60,000 rent-controlled apartments that were found to be purposely kept out of circulation by landlords in that investigative journalism piece you guys covered several months ago. Um, I'm not, I think rent control, it, it, it's more generally rent-stabilized, and I'm not sure if the 60,000 is, is the exact number. Um, um, but... But of course, we did talk about, and we do talk about this topic, warehousing. Yeah. How much of a problem is it? Yeah, and we point to and link in our report to an August, a report in August 2023 by the city's independent budget office um, that really digs in on this. Uh, and they did find that there were more units uh, that were not only rent-stabilized units, not only that were vacant, but had been vacant the year before. They found that kind of long vacant rent-stabilized unit had doubled from 6,500, um, I think in 2017, 
to over 13,000 in 2022. Um, that larger number, you know, might be, you know, off the market, but for less than a year. And this is a real concern and, and people give different reasons for this. You know, some landlords will say um, when the rent laws were changed in 2019, they can't raise the rate on a vacant unit as much. And so maybe if they have to redo the bathroom, having a hard time uh, getting the money to do that. Uh, tenant advocates will tell you, look, those units were over leveraged. People were expecting to push tenants out and raise rents. So we need to, to have those strong caps on. Um, there's a lot of ways to solve that. Um, the city's got a new program called Unlocking Doors, which will give those owners a grant to put that unit back on the market. Uh, there are vouchers where families are homeless. We give them a housing voucher to move into a new unit. Um, we've got to get those units back online. Where I'm a big advocate of a program called Neighborhood Pillars, which is giving city money to some of the nonprofit affordable housing and community development groups who will maintain that housing affordably. Uh, but your caller is right that this is, you know, in a tight housing market. We can't afford to have any rent stabilized units being held offline. So who can drop the hammer on those landlords? Uh, well, a few things. The, the the city can, you know, put some pressure on, but it's really carrot and, and stick. Um, you know, the carrots are that Neighborhood Pillars program, the Unlocking Doors program. That's an effort in Hall, Albany, um, even as we also inspect, make sure units are in good condition and keep them online. Jenny in Jackson Heights on this subject. You're on WNYC. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Um, yes, I just I agree with a lot of what's just been said, but I wanted to really push back on this accepted notion that simply increasing supply in a blanket way is going to in any way affect rents. Because it, you know, with all the building that's gone on in this city, if you're incre it's different housing markets. If you're increasing, if you're building 99% market rate housing, which is essentially what it is, even what's called affordable in the MIH buildings is really not affordable to most of us. I can't afford most of those rents. What you're really doing is you're building for a certain sector of the rental market, and the rents for the rest of us stay the same, if not viral up. And we see it with the um, commercial rent market. You have empty offices, you have tons of empty storefronts, and you know Lucy's Bar in the in East, the East Village, their rent just tripled, even with all the empty storefronts. So I think you know, it's, it's such an oversimplification to create housing policy and do these blanket upzonings for market rate housing with an eye toward reducing rent. I just don't think that works. And I think if you want affordable housing, you have to have tighter rent control and you have to build affordable housing. And it's not the market that's going to do it. Controller, I think you agree. I'm so grateful for this call. I, I really think it's a both and, I guess, is what I would say. I, I'm a supporter of uh, good cause eviction protections, because in a tight market, otherwise tenants are going to get pushed out of their homes. I'm for investing money in genuinely affordable housing, called for changes to the so-called 421A tax break to make sure what we're getting are genuinely affordable units. Um, and I like to see when uh, nonprofits have housing that will stay permanently affordable, or we've proposed a new model of the old Mitchell Lama program that would enable home ownership for working class families you know, where you can make some money over time, but not kind of speculate and, and sell at a price that makes it unaffordable to the next buyer. Uh, all that said, we do need more housing supply overall across income levels. Yes, absolutely, with a strong focus on affordable housing, 
but there is just a basic supply and demand element here as well. That's what the, the numbers we put out this month show. Um, and I get it. I love my neighborhood. I understand why people don't aren't enthusiastic in many cases about development nearby. That's why we need a thoughtful citywide approach that helps everybody kind of do their fair share that invests in neighborhoods to make them great places. That's why open space matters. I was just back in Gowanus where I supported a neighborhood rezoning as city council member and a lot of housing is going up, but a lot of it is gonna be genuinely affordable. It's coming with affordable artist studios and lots of new open space and investments in public housing and stormwater infrastructure. I believe there really are ways to do this, right? It takes good management. We put a report out this week about challenges at the city's housing department. It's taking so long just to get the affordable units financed, to rent them up uh, when the units are available. Uh, but I really think there's an overall deal to be made in Albany um, and some management work in New York City that can help us actually make a real dent on housing affordability. In, in theory... Um, supply and demand by itself could work if it was really in a very different kind of balance than we have. But the prospects for building that much new housing and really, you know, changing the balance between supply and demand, the prospects for that are very small. But in theory, if you have a million apartments and 100,000 renters, <laughs> then all the landlords are going to compete for the renters and, and the rents are going to go down. So that's why supply also matters uh, this i think is what what economists you know they always say in theory you know like the yes there's uh, it, and of course supply and demand really matters but yes you know we've been producing on average about between 20 and 25,000 housing units a year in new york city so if we could grow that if we could double that you know which would obviously be gargantuan to you know overnight double the housing supply increase you know, that would be 50,000 units instead of 25,000 units. But in a market with 3 million housing units, that's just not going to trickle down that much. And as your yeah. caller rightly says, unless you make sure it's targeted affordably, those will get gobbled up at the top of the market. And by the time they trickle down, it just does not open up much. We, we are going to go on to a few other things as right. we talk. But, but on this precise point, um, that Jenny and Jackson Heights raises. You have a long history with affordable housing. I know you ran, tell me if I'm remembering this correctly, you ran an affordable housing nonprofit in Brooklyn. Back That's in right, the, the Fifth Avenue Committee. That's right. Yes, and then you were at the Pratt Center for Community Development during yeah. the Bloomberg years, and you were vocal in your opposition then to some of Mayor Bloomberg's development policies. And I wonder if that's an era worth visiting in this context, because Bloomberg was a build, baby, build mayor, which um, which which I think is what the caller is referring to. No. Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, we did have a lot of back and forth. I thought we weren't getting enough out of our tax breaks and pushed hard to reform that 421A program. And I thought we weren't getting enough out of our, um, our the zoning programs to create affordable housing. Mayor Bloomberg had it as a voluntary program, and it just did not create many affordable units. Um, I understand not everyone loves mandatory inclusionary housing, but it has produced tens of thousands of units 
that are affordable for low moderate income and working yeah. class New Yorkers. Well, let's finish that piece of the history. Mandatory inclusionary housing was what de Blasio came in on uh, following Bloomberg as a back- backlash to what you were just describing or something more progressive. And that was generally, I know it was different development by development, but that that was generally a 20% requirement. If you build... 25. Right? 25%. 25%. Yeah. So, but even that, and again, to the, uh, to the good caller from Jackson Heights point, if you, if you take, let's say a relatively low income neighborhood and build apartment buildings that are 75% market rate and only 25% um, rent, rent regulated, then, then the, the overall impact is going to be to raise the rents in that neighborhood, and that's why it didn't work as well as people hoped. Well, let me tell you, I was I was in Gowanus on Friday, which is you know what I had worked on rezoning. Um, that rezoning is to allow about eight thousand units of housing overall, uh, two thousand affordable through this program. We're talking about twenty five percent of the market units. Then there was also there's also one piece of city owned land where all 950 units will be affordable at various incomes. So in total, 3,000 of the 8,000 new units uh, around the Gowanus Canal are going to be affordable to, uh, you know, low-income work and working-class New Yorkers. Um, in Park Slope and Carroll Gardens, which are on either side of that canal, there's just almost no affordable housing today. So I think that's going to be a much more inclusive neighborhood right. because of this program. But that's not 25%. That's, you're saying, you got to add up 25%. Well, that's 25% from the market rate developments, plus using city owned land, housing subsidies, I other see. programs uh, to boost that number up. So yeah, we need a lot of tools here. And if I could pick just one, it would be rebooting a program like Mitchell Lama that builds multifamily affordable cooperatives that would let young families buy their first unit when they couldn't otherwise possibly afford to buy in the market. I think a lot of people would support growth if that's what they thought it was going to be, not just a developer building a new rental building, but yeah, sure, a new building maybe bigger than what's nearby but with affordable cooperative homeownership for neighborhood families. Well, who built the Mitchell-Lama buildings in the first place? Was it the government? Um, so the State Urban Development Corporation created this program. Mitchell and Lama were state legislators, and it used some state-owned land and zoning, mostly built by private developers, but then the cooperative units at the end of the building phase were handed over to the residents themselves as a co-op. And there's really no reason we couldn't do that again other than political will. Would take new taxes, though, wouldn't it? Well, we're already putting a lot of money into affordable housing subsidies. You know, uh, New York City invests over a billion dollars a year in capital. uh, And I think that is, is money well spent on affordable housing. But most of it goes to for profit private developers to build rental housing. If we just said, like, let's do 50-50 and have half that go to uh, permanently affordable uh, limited equity co-ops and community land trusts and nonprofit affordable and supportive housing development, um, I think we could get more permanent bang for our buck. And again, this is why we did that report on the city's housing department. So much of this is just management and implementation, getting the projects done faster, getting them leased or sold faster, 
Um, so I think there's a lot we could do even without investing more dollars. We'll continue in a minute with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander. Among other things, talking about the report that his office is releasing today, New York City's housing supply challenge. I want to take one more on housing because I think it's different from what we've been hearing from other callers and and texters. Uh, And then I do want to get to some other topics. Education. Uh, Jason, on the Upper East Side, we see you about um, the retired city workforce and your health insurance. But Carl in Manhattan, you're on WNYC with the controller. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm a longtime listener and a longtime supporter. Um, I just wanted to put in, um, you know, the private sector and the city have to work together because we saw in the 60s and 70s that um, the city just fell flat. You know, who was the largest landowner or the property owner in um, the 60s and 70s? It was the city. And the city's housing, as demonstrated by NYCHA, is just a disaster. Um, You know, the problem with Mitchell is if you drive by them, you know, yes, the original you know, original buyers and renters are doing great, but those units don't get passed along. They they get you know, in many cases, they get sold at a profit, and um, by the you know, if they're co-ops, and that's not fair. If you're going to build subsidized housing, then there should be no profit incentive in it. Um, and the problem with no profit incentive is that nobody does anything to improve the housing. So, so the private sector needs incentives. In fact, here's a text that came in on a related point. It says the New York Times reported that the selling price of rent stabilized buildings has fallen by 50% since new regulations went into effect and that landlords can't afford to renovate empty apartments that are not up to code. Looks like a downward spiral. So to those, to those two, uh, to those two listeners, controller. Um, first, there absolutely is a lot of room for both for-profit private developers and for not-for-profits and, and cooperatives, as I say, about 80% now of the subsidies and tax breaks for affordable housing go to for-profit private developers. So there's a critical role, but I think your caller's mistaken on the Mitchell-Lama co-ops. I think it's 92% of them uh, that are the uh, Mitchell-Lama co-ops remain in the affordability program that severely restricts resale. And in most cases, the residents have voted to stay in the restrictions rather than privatize them, you know, and be able to sell at whatever price they could. Um, And yeah, it's more challenging at more affordable prices to kind of keep investing. But I've been at Co-op City and Amalgamated Houses and a lot of other Mitchell-Lama co-ops around the city village east um, I, I think that's what we need if we want working and middle class New Yorkers to be able to afford to stay here. And that's not to say there's not a lot of good, uh, you know, um, room for developers and, and for profit owners as well. Um, and look on NYCHA, we absolutely have to manage it better, but it's a critical affordable housing resource for hundreds of thousands of low income New Yorkers that would not be able to find a place they could afford to rent in New York City if we didn't still have it. So to me, it's that mixed market approach uh, and growing it actually at all levels that has the best chance to achieve the outcomes we want. And the texts are flying in. 
Someone wrote, oh, I'm, OMG, he mentioned Gowanus. All the oversized development there is so contrary to the spirit of the neighborhood and mostly bland and ugly. And I, some, I live someone, a block away, uh, and, and I think it actually is going to be a dynamite neighborhood with a great waterfront public realm. There's new affordable artist co-ops in it. There's lots of investment going into the public housing, into the sewer system. So... Give it a couple of years, walk along the Gowanus Canal, and I think you'll see it's a neighborhood with a really dynamic public realm and a lot more mixed income with a lot more diversity of families um, than what exists on either side of the canal today. And on something completely different, Jason on the Upper East Side. You're on WNYC with Controller Brad Lander. Hi, Jason. Yeah, hi. I'm actually a, a recently retired city employee, and I'm actually going to make some comments that are going to drive some other city retirees, uh, uh, make them quite angry. Uh, you know, the whole issue of city retirees being forced onto this Medicare Advantage plan, which I, which I, I joined, and so far so good. City retirees, we, we don't realize how fortunate we are in that our Medicare premiums are fully reimbursed by the city, which is really almost un, it's unheard of, I think, in the private sector and even in other public sector. And this is a benefit that's worth uh, over $2,000 a year for a, a single retiree and $4,000 for a couple. I think of this as this sort of a microcosm of how difficult it is to control city expenses because everybody wants to cut something other than what they're benefiting from. And, you know, here I am. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't be thrilled about having this benefit reduced. But and this finally is something that uh, the city could could take action on this on its own, I think. And, and, and if the city only reimbursed 50 percent of these Medicare premiums, it would save the city like hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So. This is a hot potato. Wow. I'm going to ask the well, controller about. <laughs> uh, yeah, and not in your self-interest. It doesn't sound like Jason. But but are you saying partly that look, if the city is saving money on moving people, uh, which is so far not happening because it's being blocked, but but the city wants to move retirees like yourself from regular Medicare to the Medicare Advantage plan um, as a mandatory move. You're saying, you know, people may not prefer that, but they're paying the whole premium, so let's let them try to save a little money on us that way. Is that is that part of your point? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, again, I'm not a health care policy, and everybody wants to see their doctor and have their doctor be able to do any tests they want whenever they want. But and I'm not expert on all the details of this. But, yeah, it's like, are we going to have shared sacrifice or not? You Jason, know, I guess. Thanks. Thank, thank you very much, Comptroller. You were a big opponent of uh, the Medicare Advantage mandatory switch. So what do you say to Jason? Well, first to Jason, I say your spirit of shared sacrifice, of willingness to say, you know, maybe a benefit I have is, you know, I, I don't need. I, I you know, I, I admire the spirit. And I think if we have more people saying, let's roll up our sleeves, I'd like to keep those libraries open at least one day on the weekends Let's look at what else we could do more efficiently. I think it's a great spirit. So I'm not going to uh, argue with Jason there. I talked to a lot of retirees who persuaded me that if they were forced onto Medicare Advantage, they were going to face real challenges down the road. I think Medicare Advantage, in my sense, works better for more recent or younger retirees. But as you get needier in your care, there's real back end risk. That's happening all across the country. 
Um, but, you know, he's right that we definitely need the challenging approach to managing costs if we want to keep delivering resources for affordable housing and expand pre-K and 3K so we can provide childcare for working families. We have to find things the city can spend less on. My office recently released a report on special education service dollars, which has grown from 33 million to 372 million over the last decade, without evidence that we're actually delivering more better services to the kids who need it. Or last year, we paid $1.5 billion to settle claims against the city. One of the biggest areas is for traffic crashes caused by city vehicles. Let's put speed delimiters in some of those cars or have accountability for agencies or for city drivers. If you want to get to that point where you have the good pension uh, that we're managing in the controller's office, where you have that good health care, you know, you can't cause crashes that do harm and make the city have big, pay big payouts. So, you know, that spirit of shared sacrifice and even more the spirit of, I want to make sure we're getting what we're paying for and have well-managed city government. Um, that's the only way we're going to be able to, you know, it's an expensive city to run if you want to keep it safe and clean and have the subways well run. It's a place that's crowded. It's got so many people. It's so much scale. That's what we love about it. But it really does mean spending tax dollars wisely. I know we're over time. I want to touch on two education things real quick. I'm enough of a wonk that I read the full transcript of your recent testimony before the State Senate Finance Committee and Assembly Ways and Means Committee. And I want to ask you about one particular item um, that raised my eyebrows. It's that funding for SUNY, the State University of New York, is going up, but funding for CUNY, the City University, is going down. Did I see that right? Um, the state last year, state legislature increased funding for SUNY while the mayor, his, his mayor's budget cut dollars to CUNY, in particular to the community colleges. And your reaction to that? Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, CUNY is the best engine of upward social mobility, at least in New York City and maybe anywhere. Um, and it's been counting the cuts that are in the mayor's preliminary budget cut. I think it's $93 million just since the beginning of this term. Um, again, you have to find other places to save, but cutting CUNY at this moment in time, uh, I just, I'm on a lot of CUNY campuses. I'm meeting those students. They're the future of New York City. We've got to give them, you know, good classes, good career and workforce development. Um, and less student debt. Um, and yeah, to me, it would make a lot more sense to keep investing in CUNY in the way the state legislature showed last year was possible by increasing dollars going to the city. And so last thing, and it also has to do with the mayor and education cuts. The mayor was on last week uh, with us on the show, and we got a call from a listener, Stephanie in Brooklyn, who said she was considering moving out of the city um, because she's got a little kid and there's no guarantee that the 3K and pre-K program will be fully funded enough for there to be a seat for every child who wants one in her neighborhood. So here's a little bit of Mayor Adams' response to Stephanie in Brooklyn. Thank you, uh, Stephanie. First of all, we don't want you to leave the city family like yours is who we want here in our city. Here's what happened, Brian, just giving a brief synopsis. Uh, we 
this first of all uh, pre-k 3k was on temporary dollars it was dollars stimulus dollars that the previous administration put in place of uh, those dollars are set sunsetting uh, we have to find the right funding but in addition to that we were not paying for bodies in seats we were just paying for seats of the misalignment of the number of seats that were needed in a particular community were left open. So the mayor was talking there about some pretty technical things, like the difference between paying for seats and paying for body seats, bodies and seats, so maybe misalignment, too many in one community, not enough in another community. Uh, your job is to watch the city finances. Are the 3K and pre-K programs probably the number one accomplishment of Mayor de Blasio that he'll always be remembered for. Um, are, is the city keeping that promise? Uh, for pre-K, which the state is still supporting, uh, mostly yes. But for 3K, no, we are not making it possible for every household to get a seat in their neighborhood. Some of that is outreach, right? If you have misalignment, what you need to be doing is reaching out to families, letting them know what their options are. And some of it is making sure you're putting the dollars into the right neighborhoods. Don't put it into the neighborhoods where you don't have the need, put it where you do. Um, uh, it is true we use some federal pandemic stimulus dollars to grow 3K, but that was a great investment. Um, and we do have modest, you know, some increasing uh, state foundation aid for education, as well as some additional uh, tax revenue. And to me, keeping that promise to Stephanie and to other families like her, that for your three and four year old, even if your housing costs are high and you've got other challenges of living in New York City, you're going to be able to get a good, high-quality 3K and pre-K program in your neighborhood. One of the best things we could do to keep young families here uh, and keep the city attractive and growing. New York City Comptroller Brad Lander, we always appreciate when you come on with us and answer so many questions. Thanks for the deep dive on housing today and really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Enjoy the rest of the snow day.